That's when they hear it at cocktail hour. That's when they hear it in the news. That's when they hear it at the gym. And that's when they start to ask questions like, shouldn't we own this? That's telling us something, that people are regretting the things that they didn't do, that they think would have positioned them in a much better way to live their most ideal lives. Financial decisions are endlessly complicated. There's a whole academic literature that tries to study them and improve them. And of course, there's a whole financial advisory industry that tries to help people improve their decisions as well. But there exists a divide between the two. I'm Pal Hirschfield, a professor of marketing, behavioral decision-making, and psychology at UCLA's Anderson School of Management. And on the behavioral divide, we study that gap and try to figure out what sort of insights can we learn to help people make better financial decisions. FOMO, it's a term we've all likely come to know, and of course it stands for the fear of missing out. As we'll hear in our discussions, we can face FOMO in many different aspects of our lives, but our focus in this episode is on why we face FOMO as investors and what we might be able to do about it. I first talked with Professor Shai Davidai. He's done some fantastic work that digs into different forms of regret that may help us better understand why so many of us may experience this feeling of missing out. Today, we're honored to have Shai Davidai, an assistant professor of management at Columbia Business School, with us. Um, Shai, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. So, of course, we're, we're, today we're talking about, you know, the, the, the term FOMO uh, in the investment context. And there's, you know, I, I think if you're paying attention to the news at all, there's, there's, there has been and there will continue to be a lot of conversation surrounding FOMO, meme stocks, et cetera. And at the heart of this in the investment context is this sort of mix of fear and regret and social comparison. Well, I regret not investing in something that's making so many other people so much money. You've done some fascinating work on many of these topics. And one of your papers, Shai, that I, I loved, you, you show that the things that people regret in life at large, not necessarily in the financial context, but in life, are times that they fail to live up to their quote unquote ideal selves. Now, Admittedly, it's hard to imagine that such psychology is at play in these sort of in-the-minute investment contexts, or maybe it is. But regardless, I'm curious, what are the salient regrets that you think might operate in such investment settings? That, that is a great question. And, and I do think that uh, they, play, uh, they play a role. Uh, I agree that it doesn't necessarily play a role in the minute that you're pressing the button of, you know, buy this or sell that. But I do think that when you take a moment to take stock of your portfolio, uh, when you're reading the news, uh, you're following trends, when you realize, yes, there might be a lot of regrets coming up. Um, so in general, we, we can categorize regrets as two ways. There are the regrets, like you mentioned, of ideal self, ideal regrets, which is regrets that are uh, associated with our dreams, with our goals, with our aspirations, right? And then there's the art regrets. Those are the should regrets, the things that we regret uh, that are related to our norms, to breaking rules, to our responsibilities. Now, when you think about it uh, in the financial sense, uh, the ideal self will probably be where you want to be, right? That's me on a huge yacht in the Bahamas uh, enjoying life. The odd self is what you should be doing with your money, right? Like, that's me putting money into my 401k, putting money into 
my kids' college funds, uh, saving for a rainy day. Now, what we find in general is that people tend to regret their ideal selves or ideal regrets more than their odd selves. What does that mean? When you do something that fails to advance you towards your goals, that tends to elicit way more regret than when you fail to do something that moves you towards your responsibilities. Now, you might be saying, how does that make sense? Like, if, if I lose a lot of money, if I lose... Um, money from my kids' college fund, I should regret that a lot. Well, you will be right. It does hurt. But the thing about our regrets is that they hurt so much that we then deal with them. You know, we take stock for a second. We realize that that was painful. We learn from our mistakes and we decide to never do that again. With the ideal regrets, that's more complicated. If you open the, you know, the news and you two years ago, and you saw all these people making so much money off of Bitcoin, you saw all these people like talking about NFTs, whatever that means, and you didn't invest in that because you were afraid or because you were worried or whatever it is, you might have felt a lot of regret, right? But that regret, you can't really learn from it. You can't really change from it. It's just, it's not moving you towards your ideal self. Your goals have not been fulfilled. Now, of course, right now we're living in a moment where you might feel um, voting, right? But a lot of times that doesn't happen, right? Every time you, uh, you see in, the, in movies, uh, when people say, what would you do with a time machine? Oh, I would go back in time and buy Apple stock, right? That's telling us something, that people are regretting the things that they didn't do, that they think would have positioned them in a much better way to live their most ideal lives. This is fascinating to me because you can think about, oftentimes we consider there's just regret, but I love how you're spelling out that there are different flavors of regret and the different flavors can really impact our downstream decisions. Now, you've also documented this, I think it's kind of amusing, but it's, but it's also quite serious, this phenomenon where people feel as if others are leading richer social lives than they are. I feel like, Everybody else must be going out right now. Everybody else must be doing something more fun than me. This is, of course, more general. It's not just social. The sort of the general sense that others are getting more out of life. Why, why do we so often have this sense? Right. So we all, or most of us, uh, the, the unlucky majority, feel that others are getting more out of life than, than us. Why this happens is because... Inherently, in how we evaluate ourselves is a social comparison. We choose someone else or a few people. We evaluate our lives compared to what we think their lives are like. Now, there's two problems when, that happen when we do this. There's a biased sample problem and a biased sampling problem. And I know this sounds technical, so I'll kind of like break that down. The biased sample is that we don't necessarily get the full range of other people's lives when we go through life, right? You know, you go in social media, everyone's posting about their amazing vacations, everyone's posting about their successes. It's very rare that you'll see someone posting a picture of themselves with uh, a paycheck going straight into the 401k rather than into uh, the 401 feet yachts, right? Um, so, so we get a biased sample. People are just sharing their highlights and we live our highlights, but we also leave our, live our 
downtimes. But we also have a biased sampling problem. And that's where we, uh, we've conducted most of our research. That when we think about other people, the people that are most likely to come to mind, the people that we're going to compare ourselves to, are those that come up on top, right? I'm thinking about how, how active is my life? I'm not thinking about my friends that have three or four children, uh, which is one or two more than I do. I'm thinking of my friends that are single or are married without children and how much fun they must be having, right? So I'm not just getting a biased sample, but even within that sample, I tend to focus on this very small group that will then let me feel, will lead me to feel worse off than I should be. So the, the problem that arises, if I can try to connect the dot here, the problem that arises is that when I think that others are doing more in life or getting richer than me, et cetera, because I've engaged in looking at a bias sample and bias sampling, I might then end up and correct me if I'm wrong here, I might end up jumping into things, perhaps investments, <laughs> that maybe I shouldn't. But I'm only doing so because I'm looking at these sort of exemplars out there that make me think I'm really missing out. I should do whatever they did to get where they are. Is that, is that a okay way to think about this? Yes. One, one, I want to tell you about a, a, a very recent study that we published. And I say we it's me, it's uh, Evan Weingarten, who is a marketing professor uh, at Arizona State, and Alex Barash, who's a marketing professor at um, UC Boulder in Colorado. And in that study, we told participants, this was a hypothetical study, but I think it can teach us a lot. We told participants uh, that to imagine they were playing an investment competition with friends. It's them and seven other friends. Um, and we told them, it's been a month, you invested in some stocks, others have invested in some other stocks. And here's your ranking with amongst your friends. And they were, uh, we always told them you're in the middle, there's four people or three people above you, and then three people below you. And you can see what they invested in, everyone else. And we asked them, okay, now it's the second month, what do you want to add to your portfolio? Now, here's the, here's the, uh, the interesting thing, the quirk that we added. We made, it we made it clear to participants that the investments that people above them, that did better than them, made would fail to diversify their own portfolio. They will increase your risk. So based on the things you already have in your portfolio, if you add the things that people above you also have invested in, your portfolio will be less diverse, which means more risk. We wanted to see our people going to take more risk just because we're focusing on those that have done better than them. And that's exactly what we found. So when people are seeing this, uh, this competition, they tend to focus on those that are ranked above them. They don't even remember what were the investments of people that, that they outperformed, that did worse than they did. And then they tend to choose the investments of those people that have done better than them failing to understand that that actually opens them up to a lot more risk because it fails to diversify. And this is part of the problem that, um, that you see in the world that a lot of times we take advice, not from someone who knows our portfolio, but just someone who's like, they seem very rich, like a billionaire, a millionaire, and here's what they're investing in. 
not realizing that, yeah, it worked for them, but within our constraints, that might actually open us to a lot of uh, problems and risk. That's a, it's a fantastic demonstration of the problem. So final question for you, what would be your advice to somebody who constantly finds themselves maybe paying too much attention to those exemplars out there later on regretting the decisions that they made because they were worried about later regret. That's, that's the $1 million question. Uh, and I hope I can, uh, I can give that $1 million to your uh, listeners. So uh, here's what I think. There's a very uh, famous aphorism that is attributed to Teddy Roosevelt saying, comparison is the thief of joy. What our research shows is that not enough comparison is the thief of joy. The problem is not that we compare ourselves. That is some inherent thing in human life. We're going to compare ourselves no matter what. The problem is that we stop with the first or second person that comes to mind, and we don't engage in that more thinking about who else is out there that I could be comparing myself to. So in our studies, when we ask people not to compare themselves to the first person that comes to mind, but we, we ping them to keep thinking of more people. Who else do you know? What other people uh, are in your social circle? Then they start realizing that their social lives are not as lagging behind as they thought. The same thing would happen in all other domains. If I think, well, am I doing well financially? The first person that's going to come to mind is someone who's doing very well. The second person is also probably someone who's doing very well. But if I keep thinking about it, then the, 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 the silent majority is more likely to come to mind, right? People that are doing kind of like me or my friend who was just laid off and is figuring out what to do with her lives or my friend that um, was uh, waited too long to put some money into her kids' college funds and now they're regretting it. Those people are not going to come to mind immediately. So when you find yourself in this investment FOMO headspace, ask yourself, are you just focusing on the most salient, most accessible people that come to mind, or are you really exhausting all of the comparison standards that you can think of? Shai, that's fantastic advice. Thank you for sharing that. Shai Davidai, Assistant Professor of Management at Columbia Business School, thank you so much for being here with me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Shai's work presents some super interesting findings around different forms of regret and how those different forms relate back to FOMO. I love the idea that we're more likely to learn from ought regrets when we fall short of what we know we are supposed to be doing in life. However, on the flip side, we don't seem to learn from falling short of our ideal selves, which is often influenced by our perception of what others around us are doing. In my next discussion, I speak with Blaine Lord, a veteran of the financial advisory business to understand how he's witnessed FOMO in his clients and how he goes about managing it. Today on the show, we've got Blaine Lord. He's the founder and CEO of Lord Murray. He's been in the financial advisory business for over 30 years. Blaine, thanks so much for being with us today. My pleasure, Hal. Happy to do it. So, Blaine, I'm, I'm curious about your experiences talking to clients about, well, what a lot of people call FOMO, but I think we can also refer to it as anticipated regret. The, you know, the basic idea being that sometimes we act because we're worried about the regrets we'll feel if we do or don't do something later on. So when do your clients bring up regret or anticipated regret in the space of investments? I think, you know, FOMO, the fear of missing out, 
obviously is you know it's a, it's it's an it's an emotional response to you know other people doing better or having something they don't and generally speaking the fomo creeps in after a particular asset class a particular sector of the market a particular thing that is tradable uh, has gone up you know exorbitantly has you know have has had a couple of years or maybe even less sometimes of you know of of, of outsized enormous returns based on you know little little fundamental truth to it but just basically you know people chasing it and that's when it becomes popular that's when they hear it at you know cocktail hour that's when they hear it in the news that's when they hear it at the gym and that's when they start to ask questions like you know shouldn't we own this so I'm curious when that happens when clients have that sort of feeling of shouldn't we own this too what's your normal response to that I mean, normally my response is, you know, we've taken a great amount of care in putting your plan together um, based on how much money you have, how much money you're planning on investing, when you're going to need this money for and for whom. And your portfolio is diversified widely, you know, in, 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 you know, in a thousand or more different equities that you know, not only anticipate new innovations and new opportunities in the market, but, you know, are seasoned in some regards to, you know, take advantage of those new and inviting opportunities. And by taking money away from that, you know, well-crafted, well-thought-out plan based around, you know, science and asset allocation and all the Nobel Prize-winning you know, scientists who've, you know, helped us to wrap these portfolios, it ultimately, you know, can, you know, take away returns and, 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 and hurt you. And, you know, the other thing I, I always talk about is, you know, you know, what, what's really driving the price of this, you know, and, 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 and what is it? Do you even understand it? And in most cases, you know, they don't, understand it, nor do they understand why the price is moving other than everyone is piling in. And as we know, you know, from doing this, you know, for a very long time, you know, usually, you know, what's most boosted and most popular um, will eventually be most unpopular. And we want to try to avoid that. So do you find that there have been times when even despite those warnings, you have clients who might still jump in or insist that they jump in. And have you found that they, they get harmed, you know, and, and on a second level, does it impact their behavior the next time around? That's a great, great question, Hal. Uh, yes, they, they, they will jump in and you can't often talk them out of it. I mean, you know, the most recent FOMO, as you guys know, is, you know, cryptocurrency. And, uh, you know, as Bitcoin top 40,000 and 50,000 and 60,000, you know, we had a dozen or so clients want to sell large portions of their equity portfolios to buy coins because they were absolutely convinced that this was a new new currency and was going to eventually replace the dollar and the yawn and, and everything else. And, and some of them couldn't be talked out of it. 
do you find that they're more risk averse now or do you sense that they still have some of that sort of emotional grip of FOMO in other contexts? I mean, I think, I think for the time being, you know, it's, uh, you know, it, 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 they get risk averse, you know, they, they wish they wouldn't have done it, but oftentimes, you know, the next, hot dot, if you will, that rolls around um, the same people who get caught up in the last FOMO will get caught up in the new FOMO and they will rationalize how this time it's different and, you know, get right back in. And, you know, and I can remind them, hey, remember when you took that half a million dollars and you bought that coin wallet and now you, you know, have $200,000 and not $500,000? Could this be the same thing? No, this time it's different. Or, you know, I can't believe you brought that up. Um, you know, it's, it's like that. It makes sense, right? Because people are great at making exceptions uh, out of, you know, whatever's happening right now. But but I want to flip this around. Have, have you ever employed the sort of feeling of anticipated regret or the feeling of FOMO to work with clients? Or is it really something that you see more as existing more in the negative column? If everybody could earn nine percent risk free or seven or eight percent risk free, um, you know, this would we would have no jobs. Um, so oftentimes, yes, you have to talk people into, you know, into having an equity portfolio that that oftentimes they're 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 not that comfortable with, and you know, and 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 the way that we we do that is say, hey, look, you know, if you only earn three percent. You know, you will run out of money. And if you earn six, you won't. And the only way that you are going to earn six is to, you know, have a diversified equity portfolio over a long period of time. And with that is going to come, you know, the occasional down period like 2022 or or, or 2008 where it feels bad. But, you know, sometimes you have to feel bad to feel good and you must own equities to get to where you're going. And they are going to get there with, with or without you. And you, 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 you have to, you know, you have to own them because um, you don't have enough money otherwise not to. And so in that regard, I guess it's a FOMO, but, but maybe not. No, I love that. It really focuses on not just the investment performance you might be missing out on, but what you'd miss if, if you acted in too sort of risk averse of a way. Yeah. And I think, you know, for us, there are a lot of people that are that are that 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 are too risk averse. And, you know, part the biggest part of our job is really, really, you know, getting them to focus on the long term and get used to the volatility and, you know, and 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 to be able to emotionally, you know, ride through those downturns, because, I mean, this is a we live in a world of emotion and we live in a business of emotion and helping people to control their emotions is really, you know, why we get paid. Plain Lord, thanks so much for being here today. I really appreciate your insights. You're so welcome, Hal. Thank you. It was truly great to speak with someone with as much experience working directly with investors as Blaine. He's seen many different investment fads come and go that, as he points out, have certainly led to FOMO among his client base. Now, a key point of overlap between Shy and Blaine 
was that when we act on FOMO and make investment decisions in an attempt to capture the benefits we perceive others are enjoying, it's often done without a good understanding of the associated risks. As Shai points out, if that behavior results in a poor outcome, which brings us off track from what we view as our responsibilities, like underfunding our children's college savings, then we should be more likely to learn from it and avoid the same outcomes in the future. But it might also be the case that we could have enough wealth to absorb FOMO-driven investment losses, meaning that we don't end up in a position of ought regret, but nonetheless have wound up worse off. Blaine spoke to scenarios where clients have had poor outcomes from piling into hot investment options, but then later experience FOMO again in some new investment prospect. All right, well, how can we get around this tendency to fall prey to FOMO again and again? Shai pointed out that while we may see others that are doing very well at any point in time and feel like we want to do what they're doing, there are likely just as many folks who are not doing so well at the same time. One solution then is to expand our basis for comparison. Blaine added that advisors like himself work with clients to form financial plans that suit their objectives and consider their risk tolerance. He asked clients to consider if they truly understand the investment that they're interested in, but then goes further to explain why their plan is already designed to help them get where they hope to go financially. Let me offer that missing out on that is certainly worth thinking twice about. All right, thanks again for listening to this latest episode of The Behavioral Divide. I had a great time with these discussions on FOMO, and if this is something that you've faced, I'd love to hear about your own experiences. Of course, you can find my email in the show notes if you'd like to reach out. Thanks again for listening. You've been listening to The Behavioral Divide, brought to you by Avantis Investors. This material has been prepared for educational purposes only and is not intended as a personalized recommendation or fiduciary advice. It's not intended to provide and should not be relied upon for investment, accounting, legal, or tax advice.